How are you doing? All right. Good. Everybody get off to uh, Girl Guides okay? Yes. All right. Okay. So, are we recording? We are. We are recording. Okay. Uh, let me get my stuff in order here. Um, I got Rolly to uh, email you a picture of me. Okay. Did you get it? I did get it. You did get it. Okay. That picture of me was taken by Jeff Styler. Okay. That's what I thought it was. Um, have I sent that to you before? No, but Jeff told me about it. Okay, so we'll keep it a secret from everybody else, and that'll be my story next time. This, this, this time is your turn with, with your uh, uh, famous Jeff Seiler cat story. I, I don't know if this is the cat that Jeff paid Gerhard to do an image of. Cause, that uh, would be put. I believe it was Pud, but I'm not sure. Because when when Jeff got this cat, it was a kitten. And it, it was friends of his had this cat, and they couldn't have it anymore. And Jeff, helping out, took the cat in from them. And he couldn't think of a name for the cat for the longest time. Like, I, I swear he didn't have a name for it for the first year he had the cat. And right. at one point, he had to go visit his family... And he was living in Manitowoc, and could I go over and feed the cat? I didn't have to do anything else, just feed it. If I wanted to stay and play with it, I could, but it wasn't it wasn't required. Just Basically, he's going away for the weekend. Other than food and water, the cat should be fine. And I'm like, do I need to clean the litter box? Oh, no, no, the cat will be fine. Okay. So the second time I went to feed the cat... Because it was like a, he left on Friday night, I went over Friday night just to make sure the cat was okay. Saturday I come in to see how the cat is, and the cat had crapped an X in the middle of the living room floor. <laughs> okay. Nine little turds in the shape of an X, and I walked in and looked at it, and I'm like, I don't have a camera, and Jeff's not going to believe the cat did this. And... I cleaned it up, and I went and looked at the litter box, and the litter box was full enough that, yeah, okay, it should get scooped out. So I scooped the litter box, fed the cat, played with the cat, went home, came back, fed the cat another time. When Jeff got back, he's like, so how is the cat? And I'm like, well, he missed you. Well, how do you know? He crapped an X on your, on your rug. No, he didn't. Yeah, Jeff, he did. I've I got the photographic evidence right here. Oh, no, no, that's, I didn't have a camera, so I couldn't take a picture, but it was like, I would have left it for Jeff, except that that would have been a really mean thing to do. Yes. <laughs> you, would, you would be uh, complicit with the cat at that point. I mean, the, the cat didn't like anybody other than Jeff for the, because, I mean, it was a kitten at the time, I'm fairly certain. It wasn't, it wasn't old enough to learn that, hey, I shouldn't bite everyone. They might feed me. Uh, it was a great cat, if you're talking about Pud. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Pud. 
Did Yusuf get out and never come back? Uh, no, got out, but uh, he, he, he tried to make a break for it, and uh, they round him, rounded him up and brought him back. I, I wonder where he is now. There was, I, one of the last times I talked to Jeff, right, one of the last times I talked to Jeff before he got sick, he had said that the cat, he had an air conditioner in the window, and it wasn't as wide as the window, and the cat managed to get out. And he's hoping the cat would come back, but he wasn't sure if that was going to happen. And I don't know if that was Yusuf or not. That was Yusuf. Well, I don't know if the cat came back. Mm, the, cat did come, the cat didn't come back. The, the cat was brought back, I think, by somebody. Huh. I wonder what happened to the cat. I, I do, too. That's that's one of those uh, you know whoever whoever um, uh, got got the uh, the task of cleaning out Jeff's apartment um, probably probably has asked Sister Linda um, it's uh, okay well what are you going to do about the cat and uh, all all I knew was that the uh, uh, the first in line to care for the cat anytime Jeff got called away or uh, something happened was uh, was his friend Lisa. And that's the only thing that I know about Lisa was that she was the uh, first in line uh, uh, cat care person. Okay. So. Yeah, I haven't heard you know, that's, a, that's a funny thing about, uh, about animals. They do understand that... Uh, um, Feces is a very good way to express your disapproval of human beings or or anybody else. I think that uh, that, that that transcends uh, species of all kinds. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, Jeff's cat it, it it didn't want to cuddle with me, but at the same time, when it got really lonely when Jeff was gone for the weekend, by the last feeding, it was. Oh, you're here. I guess I like you. <laughs> well, I always maintain it's like cats like anybody who feeds them. I what? mean, and the better the stuff that you feed them, the, the more they like you. Which is why I always... Uh, cat lovers don't, don't agree with me on this, but uh, when I see signs that say uh, lost cat, it's like the cat isn't lost. The, the cat found a better offer. And <laughs> As soon as the cat decides that the cat um, disapproves of whoever they're with right now, then the cat will come back and go, "Okay, did you miss me? Let's let's see uh, let's see what kind of food you give me, and I'm either sticking around or I'm uh, heading off for uh, uh, greener grass and and better pastures." Um, as soon as you're not looking. Okay. Uh, moving on from there. There we go. We, we that's uh, uh, our second uh, Jeff Seiler Memorial segment. Uh, then we moved on. We move on to. Oh yeah, yeah. Nada, Nada. Uh, question from last month that I didn't send from N 
name for a gallery. Uh, hi, Dave. On Latter Days, page 430, there's two characters that look like they came straight out of the show, South Park. My question is, how about that, huh? <laughs> it's probably the most, quote, modern, unquote, reference in service, and I'd like to hear you talk about it. Uh, thanks, Nadek. And yes, I'm, I'm looking at the image. Uh, I didn't remember uh, putting the, uh, the South Park kids, uh, kids in there. Are, are you a, enough of a South Park expert that you know who those two are? Uh, I'm not looking at it, but I believe it's Cartman and Stan. Okay. They, they both have stocking caps on, right? Yeah, yeah. One has the ear flaps. Oh, yeah, I, I guess they both, anyway, yeah, I, I, uh, that's all that I know about South Park. What, what I'm curious about looking at it is uh, that was February 2003, which means um, I didn't have my television anymore because that went uh, summer of 2001. And I'm wondering... Where did I get the reference for South Park? Because uh, I'm pretty sure I wasn't doing any kind of uh, uh, internet research at the, at the library or any other place. And as far as I know, there's never been a South Park comic book. Uh, that's one of my fallback positions. Is there a comic book of this currently coming out, in which case I grab uh, whatever is the latest previews came in and flip through that and, and look for, for reference there. Um, well, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to where I would have found, uh, I know the name, uh, the only name I know from South Park is Cartman because it's a, it's a very funny name for, uh, for a little kid. Uh, well, it could have been you. Do, you could have been at the library doing research because that would have been the lead up to two eighty nine two ninety. Right. So I'm I'm yeah, assuming that there must have been an image in the newspaper because the show came out in ninety seven. This was two thousand three, so that's what six years later. Yeah. I think the movie had come and gone by that point. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, even even Dave Sim had heard, had heard of uh, South Park uh, by that point, which tells you it's a real, real cultural touchstone. Uh, I, I find it a very funny image. I was very, very happy with the whole uh, um, Mia Farrow, Woody Allen uh, ending on uh, uh, latter days, and uh, it's one of those, you know, I look at the image and I go, see, uh, for progressives, this is, hey, look at our great family, and it's like, for me, it's, no, this is, this is pretty weird, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I realize the pro progressives would uh, view me as a racist um, for saying, no, this doesn't look like a family to me, which is one of the reasons that I put uh, Will Eisner's evidence.
light in there was uh, okay. This is this is how strange this looks to me. Although I'm sure it doesn't look that strange to you. Um, but it, it's it, it's it's that weird. Um, this was one kind of family uh, in quotation marks to Woody Allen and a capital F family to Mia Farrow. And I I thought that they were they were both uh, completely off base on that. Um, I mean, one of one of the kids in this picture is uh, is the one that's uh, uh, what. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember his name. He, his, his last name is Farrell, and he's the one that's been uh, basically Rowan. Uh, what's that? Rowan. Yes, that's the one. And uh, it's like um, I I I really find that odd to have uh, an adopted. Well, it, it, is he the adopted son or he's the natural son? He's the natural son, I believe. He's the natural son. Um, it's like one of those... Um, I don't think that you can make the Woody Allen version of the Woody Allen, Mia Farrell family normal in any kind of sense. And I don't think you can make the Mia Farrow version of the Woody Allen, Mia Farrow family normal by... Uh, any stretch of the imagination. And I think that's one of the things that has kept this um, on a slow boil for all of these many years. And But it, it's very difficult to understand as a progressive, what is it that you find um, so completely deplorable about this? It, it just looks like you know, two different, two different versions of of what a family is. Neither of which seems to me like uh, a a particularly good idea. But you know, I've been uh, I've been written out of the public record for so long. Uh, nobody would care what Dave Sam thought about something like this. Uh, and I thought that the the South Park kids um, fit with that. Uh, one of those. Like, you know what these kids are like on the cartoon, and here they're being presented as, you know, you know, one big happy family. And, uh, you know, Joe Matt is uh, a, a happy member of, uh, of the Mia Farrow, Woody Allen family. That seemed appropriate to me. Um, so, uh, yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't mention them in the notes, um, at, at the back of the book, because uh, I would, I, you know, I'm always kind of embarrassed about how little I know about popular culture. It's like everybody else knows what these, these two kids' names are, and I only know them as, uh, yeah, I found the reference somewhere uh, in time to put them into uh, into latter days, uh, into the Woody Allen, Mia Farrow family, and. Uh, was was happy that I did. Uh, it is probably the the as as Nadab is saying, um, it, it's uh, uh, the latest 
probably cultural reference coming on the scene in uh, uh, in Cerebus's 26-year history uh, that South Park debuted uh, seven years before the end, which uh, segues into Baby's First Tattoo. And I thought I came up with that. I didn't come up with that. Like, I stole that from the Zeitgeist or... I heard somebody say it, or I read it, uh, read it, and forgot that I read it, and and put it into. Uh, it's in the last day, right? Yes, it's one. Yeah. Of the, it's one of the posters outside the sanctuary. Right, right. Which I was always very pleased with that that I came up with that, and uh, now I find out that there was this book. What, did the book come out first, or did uh, did latter the the poster in latter days come out first. The book's copyright 2002. Okay. It doesn't actually say what year it was published. It just says copyright 2002 and illustrations are copyright 2002. Right. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a very funny premise. A very funny, um, politically incorrect premise. Um, I... I I'm, I'm wondering if it's one of those things where uh, I thought I came up with it and um, I read it somewhere and it just stuck unconsciously in my mind or it was one of those really weird ones where um, both of them come into existence simultaneously and um, there's just no explanation for, for how they, they came into, into existence simultaneously. Where, where did you find it? Was it like just in a bookstore? Or? So when my nephew was born in 2004, my brother, somebody gave him a copy of the book or he bought a copy of the book. Like he might have been in a bookstore, saw it and went, oh, that's hilarious. So when his, when my niece was born, after that, I'm not, I can never remember what year she was born. Because I'm a great uncle. Uh, I wasn't going to say anything. No, oh, no, no. Every year it's, it's her birthday rolls around and it's, how old is she again? And Paula tells me and I conveniently forget five minutes later. I think she's three years younger, so 2007. Okay. Uh, he, he's, they're having a second baby and Paula and I went out and bought another copy of the book of, okay, here you go, and gave it to him. And when Janice was born, he gave it back going, yeah, we didn't fill that one out at all. <laughs> Regifting back to uh, the person who gave it to you. That's cold. Well, it's... It, in my family, it's a... Uh, yeah, yeah, remember that thing you gave me? Yeah, I completely don't need it, but it sounds like you do. <laughs> it's, it's a funny book, but at the same time... It's a service and hell book. Like, you know, it, it, it presents things like, uh, on the day baby was born, there's a checklist of what to take to the hospital, and then the next entry is, person who forgot to take the bag we packed with all that in it, uh, baby's hometown, hospital we were going to when baby was born, hospital cab driver was going to when baby was born. <laughs> of traffic jam that kept us from getting to the hospital, name of cab driver slash policeman who helped deliver baby, 
nationality a cab driver? Uh, uh, I appreciate you faxing over the introduction. It was it was pretty funny too. <laughs> but that's uh, a very specialized sense of humor. I mean, that's one of those. I can definitely picture somebody getting that as a gift and going, "Oh no, we don't want this. We're good parents." Um, okay, so thank thank you for uh, at least updating me on the on the baby's first tattoo. I should probably get get a copy of that for the Cerebus archive. Just uh, what uh, well, I. Future generations ponder over the question of, of who came up with it first. I think I'm going to look Jim Mullen, the author, up on the internet and see if he's on Facebook or something. Contact him to find out if he's a service fan and if so, if he inadvertently ripped you off. Yes, yes. Or even intentionally. I mean, uh, that's that's one of those where we're, we're all, we, we all let, we let that kind of stuff slide around here. We're not... We're not real big on uh, on suing people for unauthorized uses of things. Uh, we're we're living in the in the glassiest house of all glass houses. Okay, and moving on from there to Dan Eckhart uh, in his facts about a new cover for service number one. Dave said he had quote no idea how to draw in my service number one style anymore, unquote. Uh, could he please elaborate? Uh, presumably, his style changed slowly without intent and without his noticing. So let me see. I got, uh, I got some notes here somewhere on that one. There we are. Um, it... Um, so we're going we're to stop at that point. Uh, it, it has more to do with the inking. I went from um, obsessively trying to ink like Neil Adams and totally sucking at it uh, to um, the point where I swerved into doing Al Williamson, uh, like uh, refer, uh, looking at Al Williamson strips and trying to do that style instead of trying to do Neil, uh, then I was sucking less badly at, at doing Neil. Uh, through looking at Williamson, I understood that Neil wasn't this profusion of details piled onto the picture. I mean, my, my theory was just add more oblique angle cross-hatching. Uh, the more cross-hatching, the more it looks like Neil. And it's like, no, that's the, that's the amateur uh, approach um, to trying to figure out how to do uh, Neil Adams. Designing service, a big part of the gag was it needed to look as if everything was drawn by Barry Windsor Smith. So there was a fusion of those two that took place. Uh, still badly imitating Neil out of habit, and more consciously, badly imitating DWS on top of it. Uh, it's an of-the-moment thing. My enthusiastic amateurism, uh, my ingrained Neil habits, and focus on BWS risks create, uh, again, an of-the-moment artistic uh, chimera. Um, Dave Sim, 
21 years old again, and I can't duplicate all of those overlapping realities that generated my Cerebus style in 1977. It's, it's this weird Uh, okay, uh, you know, th thanks for these. 
the number two covers in uh, in their weekly auctions, the weekly online auctions. But uh, the front cover uh, for number one, uh, re reimagined, is in their uh, November 19th, Friday, November 19th, session four auction in the catalog, in the Heritage Auctions catalog, which means they're looking for big things out of this. It's <laughs> like, this is, uh, this is this is the big leagues. And I, I just got the catalog in today, and it's like, okay, well, I got to see it. I'm, I'm looking through the SI section in the back of the catalog, and I'm going, it's not here. It's not here. Todd, Todd said it was going to be in the... Uh, uh, into the in the signature auction. Why isn't it in here? And it's like it's in the front of the catalog. It's, it's like, are you kidding? The front of the catalog. The front of the catalog is like big stuff. I'm in between a uh, a Bill Bilsenkevich, um preliminary for a uh, um, Daredevil um, cover. And a BWS vision splash from the Avengers on a two-page spread. It's like, okay, <laughs> like I say, am I really overthinking this? Because because uh, then I'm thinking, I'm just going to take the service number one cover, which is tiny. It's it's like size as as the comic book, and. Um, just uh, double it in size on the photocopier, um, trace it off, and let's do that really, really primitive, bad Dave Sim style, but uh, watercolor. Watercolor it with really, really red flames, which I know how to do now. Having done, I think 14 of them are, are red flames and 14 of them are yellow flames. And... Uh, Hey Todd, here's, here's Dave Sims' latest service number one, and it looks just like the 1977, but Russ Heath style. Hey, uh, I I know how to do this accurately now, and let's see, maybe I can maybe I can make the front of the catalog. Maybe I can make the front of every catalog. It's not a heritage auctions catalog unless you've got your your Dave Sim Dave Sim service number one reimagined piece in the front and going for uh, mucho, mucho dinero. But uh, uh, getting back to Dan Echo, sorry, sorry to digress that way, but it really did dovetail. You can see that when uh, he was asking about the service number one, it's like, funny as you mentioned that, Dan, the service number one's definitely been on my mind. So getting back to Dan, uh, he goes, uh, uh, Charles Schultz's style also changed from when Peanut started, uh, but steadied eventually uh, to the characters that we all recognize. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Charles Schultz is the same process, but uh, different touchstones. Um, his, his earliest Peanuts, uh, when he was still hoping it would be called Little Folks, um, he drew his cartoons 
to be accepted in the Saturday evening post like he was he was a major comic strip fan and he definitely wanted to do a comic strip but he was also expansive enough in his perception of cartooning to go uh, Saturday Evening Post is probably going to pay me a lot more than um, a comic strip even if I got accepted by the syndicates which he didn't he had chopped his work around to all of the syndicates um, so I think I think when he was designing his own cartooning style he was definitely looking at a specific style um, common to the Saturday Evening Post um, and going okay this is this is what I'm going to draw uh, in the hopes that I'll get accepted by the Saturday Evening Post and then that did happen it did work they went yes this looks like a Saturday Evening Post cartoon it's uh, very light whimsical family style humor uh, mom dad and grandma will all enjoy these cartoons um, but he, he, he as I say he's still a comic strip fan so it was he wasn't just going to be a magazine cartoonist uh, he was going to keep shopping his strips around and uh, try, trying to get a comic strip uh, once he got his own strip there was no more need to look like the Saturday Evening Post cartoonist. And uh, at that point, he starts changing to a less magazine, slick, cute look to something more contemporary to the 1950s. Um, he, quote, steadied eventually, unquote, uh, quoting Dan there. Uh, that's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, but Peanuts experts like Seth uh, could tell you to within a year or two when a given Charlie Brown or Sally or Peppermint Patty appeared. If you just took it out of the strip and just presented them uh, to Seth and said, uh, Charles Schultz, Peanuts, um, Sally, what year is this? Um, he would be able to tell you, 1958 Charlie Brown doesn't look like 1965 Charlie Brown. It looks much closer to it than 1950 Charlie Brown, but uh, that's one of the levels of expertise that um, Charles Schultz would have had about his own work. He could probably narrow it down to uh, a six-month period if you showed him a Charlie Brown divorced from context and said, uh, what year is this? Uh, Seth is probably pretty close to that capability. Uh, relating this to Sarah's, uh, uh Sandy, when uh, we were we were starting uh, Cerebus and Hell with a question mark, and uh, it's like okay, find find uh, a small handful of iconic Cerebus drawings that we can just use over and over and um, the placid Cerebus drawing the, the Cerebus just standing with his sword in front of him staring straight out at the reader um, Sandy, Sandy said to me where did I get this one from <laughs> and it's like 
going, uh, what issue is it? And it's like, that was, mm, okay, I'm picturing the whole second half of church and state and looking at this, like, where is there a placid picture of Sarah that's just staring at the reader in church and state? It's a, it's a pretty, pretty bouncy storyline. And it's like, it, it did take me a little while, but I went, oh, 112, 113, right at the very end where uh, he says somebody pushes a button and blows up the sun. And uh, the, the old guy and the bartender are looking at him, and then he just turns around and walks away. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's where it was. But uh, Sandy almost, almost stumped me on that. But as I say, I can, I can look at a therapist drawing divorced from its context and tell you mm, usually which, which graphic novel it's from. Uh, Dan goes on. Uh, do all artists go through this process? Uh, are there some that never settle in? Um, all productive artists go through the process because of the volume of work they produce. Uh, there are guys who just develop a certain facility and then just crank the work out at the same level for the rest of their lives. Uh, Jerry Lazar when I interviewed him when I was 17 years old, said that about Stan Drake. Uh, Stan, Drake Stan Drake hasn't, uh, you know, improved in uh, in the last 15 years or whatever. But <laughs> uh, I didn't think it at the time, but the more that I think it over, uh, it's like Stan Drake's facility was orders of magnitude higher than everyone else's. The stuff he cranked out was better than 90, 90% of the guys working in that style when they're absolutely pedal to the metal trying to do their best work. Um, but even there, the, the work evolves or devolves depending on the level of engagement, um, whether they have assistance, uh, how much uh, the assistants are doing, all of those questions enter in. Um, Stan Drake, it was, you know, always waiting for Heart of Julia Jones to become something, and it certainly merited becoming something, just as a, as a technical achievement. And then at a specific point, you're just going, uh, this, is, this is never going to happen. Um, I've been doing this for literally decades now, and this is just not showing up on the radar screen. That, that had more to do with the fact that it was a, a romance strip. Um, comics is, and certainly has been for the longest time, a boy's medium. Nobody was interested in Art of Juliet Jones because it was a girly strip. Um, hopefully we're getting uh, more of a level of sophistication than that now, but uh, for years and years, that was that was definitely the case. So rounding this, uh, oh, I, that's right. I, I answered that out of order. He was asking, "What is it about the early style that Dave thinks that he couldn't do?" That was uh, the the part of the answer that I gave, where I can't be twenty one years old anymore. I can't be suddenly moving from devotion to uh, 
Neil Adams to um, trying to do a specific style for a specific effect, doing BWS. And I can't subtract uh, 40 years of drawing knowledge uh, just because I want to do this this specific style. It just it it really really doesn't work that way. It, uh, you can you can only be who you are when you're in in the present context. And as soon as it's ten years ago, it's ten years ago. It doesn't matter which cartoonist it is. What was it that the guy said? Once a profound truth has been seen, it can't be unseen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, it might be a lucky guess rather than profound, but uh, yeah, that's, that's very definitely uh, I mean, the situation. And, and also the fact that uh, cartoonists are spectators to their own work. You don't you don't really know what part of your personality, your mind, your brain, your soul, you're using as an artist. You do go into a, a Zen state um, in an ideal situation where you're not consciously what you're doing, doing what you're doing. You're just, uh, you're either trying to fix it because you couldn't get what you were trying to do or it's just one of those wonderful pages that's just falling on the page exactly. It, you, you couldn't couldn't imagine doing this any better than uh, uh, than, than you're doing it, and you have no idea why that's the case. And you know you're 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 just a you're just a spectator to that. And then after the fact, then uh, you look at the work and. It's, it's, it's almost always much better. It's like, Gerard used to have that experience all the time when the new trade paperback would come in. And he would be thinking about all of the anguishing that he had done about uh, the backgrounds and, and whatever else. And, uh, you know, this looks great. This is wonderful. What, what was I worried about? What was, what was I complaining about? Um, the same as, you know, when... when and Todd Ignite told me that the Sarah's number one cover was going to be at the signature auction. It's like I'm going, oh, it's not really that good. It's, you know, uh, I, I was pretty happy with it. It's all pretty much uh, dead end inking. But uh, as soon as I saw it in the Heritage catalog, it's like, no, that's great. I, 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 I wish I could do that again. I, I wish that I had pictured that more, more favorably. <laughs> I didn't do it that long ago. Okay, and I think uh, we're going to we're going to split the the two sessions there because I got uh, I got the prayer time coming up, and uh, when uh, when we come back, uh, just after my prayer time. M.J. Sewell? Yes. Or is it M.I. Sewell? J. J? Okay. Yeah. The, you know, the J's on your font look a lot like I's. Those of us who, who don't have, have the eyes that we used to have. Um, not sure this is too personal. I just watched the 
DVD audiovisual high society. Loved that Denny read her publisher letters. Uh, how is your relationship with Denny? Or Gerhardt, since you still live near each other. Are there chats over a beer or just polite Canadian animosity? Cheers, MJ Sewell. So, when we come back, we will be answering MJ Sewell's questions. Talk to you in a few minutes there, man. Okay. I'll be waiting. There he is again. Okay. Are we recording? We are recording. We're recording. Okay. Um, this 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 uh, question had uh, um, sprawl written all over it. So in order to limit the sprawl, I I actually uh, wrote out my answer. So this this is going to sound a little more a little more stilted than uh, than our usual conversational stuff here. Uh, yes, it is too personal, but that concept, if it isn't gone from our society, definitely has its hat and coat on and one foot out the door. So, not to worry, MJ. Uh, I don't have a relationship with Denny, and I haven't had since the 1980s. On the rare occasion when I talked to Harlan Ellison on the phone, he'd invariably ask, do you ever hear from Denny? Uh, after Denny and I broke up, Harlan and Denny didn't, uh, quote, go out, unquote, but they did have a one-night stand or a fling of some kind. I think it was Harlan's idiosyncratically condescending way of saying, now that I've had her, you should think about taking her back. I usually just mumble something and answer. Uh, but finally, on one of the phone calls, I said, no, Harlan, do you ever hear from any of your ex-wives? And I put an end to the question. Uh, in the fornication slash adultery universe I used to inhabit, a clean break seemed the most sensible thing. I would see guys dating women who were still good friends with their legion of ex-boyfriends, and it just really looked unhealthy uh, for the current boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, and uh, the woman herself. Uh, 20, 23 years past my last relationship, which is what we're talking about right now, my view would be more along the lines of, quote, fornication and adultery don't work, and can't be made to work. Pick someone and marry them and be with them for the rest of your life or stay away from all of them and be alone. Capital B, capital A, unquote. Uh, I wish I had picked the latter 38 years ago instead of 23 years ago. Uh, Gerhard, no, I have zero contact with. Uh, the most succinct way of putting it is he decided that Dave Sim was the problem and Rose was the solution, an extension of the issue 186 societal conclusion, Dave Sim is the problem and feminism is the solution. My reaction to Gerhardt's conclusion is the same and was the same as my reaction to society's conclusion. Quote, 
I don't think that's going to work out for you, but that's your choice to make. Best of luck to you. Unquote. OCD environmentalism, OCD LGBTQ, critical race theory, calling parents concerned about their children's education, domestic terrorists, deplatforming, cancel culture are all implications of feminism run amok. 27 years after issue 186, in my view, the situation remains the same. You go from unhealthy to healthy, you first have to admit that you have a problem. And you have to accurately identify the source of the problem. The source of society's problems is feminism. We're no closer to admitting, admitting that as a society than we were 27 years ago. As Betty Davis said in All About Eve, quote, fasten your seatbelt, we're in for a bumpy ride, unquote. My best guess is 27 years in, our bumpy ride is just beginning. Thank you, MJ. If that doesn't clear the air, I doubt that anything I might say would clear the air. So there you go. <laughs> one, one concise page. So uh, moving on from that one, we've got Steve Swenson. Hello, Steve. Steve in uh, Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hi, Matt. Okay, for the next Please Hold for Dave Sim event, what was the idea behind both the party pack and Ashcan issues from the guy's era? Uh, okay, we'll answer that part first. The idea was, um, that's issue 201 through 204, and what was happening was Mothers and Daughters was pretty much the longest storyline um, and guys following it there was there was no experience with a new storyline starting um, or I, I should correct that it, it, there had been experience with it but it had been four years since a new service storyline had begun and Everybody pretty much got caught flat-footed, uh, include, including us, that uh, everybody ordered their service 201s and then ordered their service 202s, their 203s. And by the time that they ordered 203, 204, they had gotten 201 and were instantly sold out of 201. And can we get more of them? And it's like, uh, no, you can't. It's... Uh, we, we, we only we only print them once and uh, you know that's just how we have to do it on on a monthly basis we can't we can't be doing second printing um, although we did end up doing that with mothers and daughters uh, but with that was with single issues and then it was okay which ones do they need okay well let's reprint 151 and then we'll reprint 152 and then one 53 and we'll put second printings on them and 
it was it, it as the comic book field has always been it's all over the map i don't know how retailers do the job that they do um 151 um we did we did the second printing and i think pretty much all of them sold then 152 uh no they didn't sell it's like everybody wanted Brothers and Daughters won because it's got uh, one on the cover. And nobody wanted Mothers and Daughters 2 because it had a 2 on the cover. Although some of them did because they just wanted to read it and they didn't get to the store in time to buy 152 before it was sold out. So could we reprint it? So with um, uh, guys, it was, okay, instead of trying to accommodate those different audiences who are, are doing this for different reasons, we will do a separate package called Guy's Party Pack that I think we printed four of them. I think it was 201 to 204, and we'll offer those after 204 has shipped. And that will allow the stores to fill in um, their back inventory so that people can start from the beginning. It'll allow the number one people to buy Cerebus Party Pack number one, and it'll allow the people who uh, only missed an issue to buy that issue, but they'll have to buy the whole package. And as I recall, that worked fine, uh, but came up short. I don't know, uh, that's one, uh, one of Steve's questions is uh, uh, how many of them were there? Boy, I, I couldn't tell you. As far as I know, there were two printings because we did the one printing and sold all of them and came up short by two or 300 copies and then went, well, okay, let's, you know, we, we want to be as accommodating as possible here. So instead of just printing the 200, or so that we need, let's print a thousand. And then that way, everybody's all set for, for guys. And I think what happened was we were able to make up part of the order from what was left over of the first printing of Guy's Party Pack. And then we got uh, a small reorder and filled that one, and then we were just lousy with Guy's party pack. I would have to check the the inventory levels, but uh, that's one of those books. Uh, I've still got way, way too many of them because there's just no way to really fix the problem. It, uh, there's a sudden surge of demand, the surge of demand, is very, very temporary and comes sort of late in the day. So it's very difficult to accommodate. And uh, that, okay, that, that, covers the, that covers the party pack. Then asking about uh, the, uh, the Ashcan, was the Ashcan only available at conventions slash retailer events? Uh, my, my, Recollection might be inaccurate on this, but as I recall, the Ashcan was only distributed 
at uh, a Diamond event in Toronto, um, where Diamond actually did a separate uh, uh, retailer conference that they were doing at the time in Canada, even though they didn't really have um, a Canadian warehouse or anything like it. Um, and my way of sort of accommodating this was, well, okay, you tell me how many retailers are going to be in Toronto who are going to get these retailer packs, and I'll do uh, an Ashcan of 201 because we just uh, we just finished up uh, 201. I, I don't think it had all of issue 201, but I think it had um, 16 pages or something like that. So that's my recollection on it. And going back a few years, it wouldn't surprise me that uh, we sent them for the retailers for other events, but I really do think that this was a, uh, the stars seem to be aligning correctly that we'll, we'll be starting the new storyline um, and finishing that first issue um, just before this, uh, this diamond event in Toronto. So what the heck, phone, phone Kim at Prenny and tell them, can you do half size ash cans of uh, Service 201, you know, this many pages and, you know, pretty please turn, turn them around in a hurry. Uh, it was, ash cans were very fashionable at the time. So it's like, well, okay, we had never really done an ash can. Not some ash cans that were just my personal reference of uh, reduced photocopies of an issue, but that I had it to refer to while I was working on the next issue. So this was a mass-produced uh, ash can. And uh, does the archive have a plethora of these in storage, or just a few, or perhaps none. Uh, that was one of those, I didn't even have a copy of uh, the uh, issue 201 Ashcan. And uh, when we went down to record distribution in uh, 2015 to clear out the warehouse, because they were closing the warehouse and move all of the inventory to Kitchener. One of the things was a box that had uh, about 20 copies of the ash can in it. And we had a bunch of people volunteering um, to, uh, to help close the warehouse. Um, I think about a half dozen or people just, just drove in because knew we needed it few pairs of hands, more hands the better. And uh, that was one of the things that was in a box just in uh, uh, Wrecker's office on the way into the warehouse. And uh, I stopped by and, you know, just a lot, it was a, it was a couple of days just opening, opening uh, boxes. I wonder what's in this one. I wonder what's in this one. Open that one and went, oh, the 201 Ashcan. Okay, well, now I got 20 copies of that. And then uh, didn't check the box again until uh, sometime later the next day. And the 20 copies were now three copies. So I definitely grabbed those and 
carried them around with me from then on. So those are the only Ashcan copies that I've got in the Cerebus archive. Could have been 20. Give your head a shake, Dave. Um, this is a warehouse full of Cerebus fans. You can't just leave those lying around and just be glad that there's still three of them there. So how many copies of the party pack and Ashcan issues were printed uh, is Steve's follow-up question. Um, like I say, I, I would have trouble ballparking both of those for the two different reasons. I don't know how few retailers there were at the Diamond event in Toronto, and I don't know how many party packs we printed um, aside from really way too many uh, relative to the circulation at the time. But that was one of those things. Um, this, this, uh, if, it, if this helps us build up circulation, which it didn't, um, this, is, this is a good way to go about doing it. So uh, we still have a, a lifetime supply of guys' party backs. And if, if anybody wants to Wants to send a check for uh, 10 or 15 bucks. I will get Rolly to pull out a guy's party pack from for them if that's a rarity from where you're sitting. I was going to suggest if you have so many that you don't know what to do with, how about you charge 50 bucks American and they can get guaranteed genuine signed by Dave Sim with a remarked service drunken bubble drawn next to the signature. It's a theory. It's a theory. We could, we could, uh, we'll, we'll start it as a swordfish item. Just uh, all of you people who uh, who are actual swordfishes, service swordfishes, and are interested in a guy's party back, just send me a postcard or a letter. Um, if you, if you've got a can number or anything like that, we've already got your address. Just write swordfish guy's party back. Thanks, Dave. And we'll send one out to you. <laughs> okay, I was trying to get AV a little bit of money. Well, I appreciate that, but this is, please hold for Dave Sim, this is pretty exclusively 10 or 15 swordfish people. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen now. It, uh, it, it always happens when we think it won't happen. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, everybody will have forgotten by next time, so so maybe in December we'll uh, we'll do the rare rare guys party pack offer, um, fifty dollars for a guys party pack with uh, with Dave, Dave Sim signing it and writing the word drunk over his signature. <laughs> uh, Little Orphan Aardvarks, the secret society member, toenail, A.K.A. Jen DiGiacomo. Um, how many uh, Little Orphan Aardvark Secret Society members are there? Do you know offhand? Uh, I want to say 10, but I haven't mailed a couple of them out yet because those people are getting them gratis because they're inner circle. Okay. Paid, I think, 7? Seven? 7? Okay. Deion uh, Turner's okay. getting one because he cracked the code without a decoder wheel. That's impressive. <laughs> that's why his 
His secret society name is going to be TV after Mike TV from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, who cracked the code with with uh, well that it, it's the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory remake movie. In that movie, Mike TV cracks the code on how to get a golden ticket, and he doesn't even eat the chocolate. He just did it to crack the code. It's a practical enigma, he said enigmatically. <laughs> okay, over over to Jan here. Uh, I, we're we're going to come back to the uh, uh, Little Orphan Arvark Secret Society and 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 the decoder uh, wheel in in a few moments. Uh, it's showtime, folks. I include two fanzine covers by Mr. Sim that I stumbled across whilst searching the interwebs for Simeon Ephemera. Hmm, that's not right. Simesque? Simist? Never mind. Uh, I think that was one of those things that God decided he was going to fix way, way before I got born. Uh, to keep people from doing that, Let's give him. The, let's make sure he's a sim, so nobody nobody will uh, will use Simeon as as the association. Uh, the illustrations date from 1982 and 1986, and are both related related to Edgar Rice Burroughs. The latter is Aardvarks of Mars, and an impressive representation. Thank you, of incorporating one's own creation into another fandom. Uh, the former seems to be a straight-up Tarzan sketch with Nair and Aardvark in sight. I am curious if there is any backstory here, or if two overzealous fans, Bill Ross and Michael Conran, respectively, merely published convention sketches without Dave's knowledge. Uh, that seems a likely possibility. Uh, I'm looking at the... Uh, Aardvarks of Mars, and for 1986, that's definitely looking like a high-end convention sketch. It's it's not really complicated, but it's uh, it's not really altogether simple either. So it would strike me that it's. Uh, one of those conventions where I would have a sketch list and somebody said, uh, can you do something related to John Carter of Mars? And it's like, haven't had one of those before. Okay, how much are you in for? And it looks like they probably said either uh, 50 or 75 bucks for, uh, for 1986 because uh, I, I can tell by looking at it, I did take some time with it and uh, the aardvarks of Mars is closer to an actual logo than would be on a $25 sketch where I would have just handwritten aardvarks of Mars. Um, what, are the, what are those things called in John Cotter of Mars, the, one, the ones with the forearms? Uh, I should know this. I should know this too. That's, that was bothering me all day. And I'm going, Dave, you have other things to look up. You can't be trying to figure out, okay, were they thoughts or thunks or... Yeah, that sounds right. Tyrus Tarkus is the character's name. They're known as Green Martians. 
Yeah, yeah. See, now it's gonna bug you too. Uh, uh, now I'm gonna get up, walk three feet, grab my copy of Princess of Mars off the bookshelf. <laughs> while while I while I fill in the dead air here. Yeah. Uh, they were they were all over the place. It was one of those things that really appealed to me when I was uh, whatever age I was when I read John Carter of Mars. And I remember um, Jim Ivey did a magazine that was actually a fanzine, but also a newsstand magazine called Monsters and Heroes. I think the first issue of that that I actually found on a newsstand in Kitchener, and I still can't believe that that happened, uh, there was actually uh, an article on John Carter of Mars where somebody drew whatever they were called. And I had never seen one of them actually drawn and went, wow, that's really impressive. So that, that would be one of the things uh, figuring into by putting more time into this drawing that whatever those things are called, this was my first try at, at drawing one of them and doing, doing service as one of them. Have, have, have you found whatever the... Uh, I, it's not in the table of contents. Oh, okay. Or... That's... Thark. Thark. T-H-A-R-K. Thank you. They're Tharks. <laughs> Tharks for the memories. <laughs> okay, moving on, moving on to the next cover. Um, that one... Uh, the signature definitely looks like 1982 tour. Um, I don't know how long I did that signature, but it seems to be idiosyncratic to the 1982 tour where I didn't put a box around Dave Sim. I did this uh, sort of rounded box. And that one, I think... Uh, somebody came up and said, can you do me a Tarzan? And I went, uh, you mean service as Tarzan? And they went, no, Tarzan, can you do me a Tarzan? And it's like, I thought, well, uh, okay. Uh, it's not as if I don't know what Tarzan looks like. And, uh, definitely looking at the picture, I was, uh, Having a having a flashback to uh, Neil Adams' Tarzan covers, which was in 1982, would probably have been the last major release of uh, re-release of the Tarzan books. They would do that every once in a while, re-release all the Tarzan books, and you know get presented to do all the covers. Those sold really good, and I think. Neil was hot enough whatever year that that was that they went, well, we'll get Neil Adams to do all of the Tarzan covers. And I think he did like the first eight or ten or however many there, there were. And it's like, yeah, well, then, you know, a sketch is a sketch is a sketch. I don't, I don't really have to worry about uh, getting Tarzan right. I, I know exactly the Tarzan in my mind. This will give me an excuse to to do a Neil Adams 
riff that uh, isn't Moonroach. And uh, again, it looks like this this for 1982, mm, probably looking at a $25, $30 sketch for that. So, uh, and, in, and, in and in those cases, uh, having printed uh, a number of people's artwork, uh, Jeff Jones, Al Foster in uh, uh, Now and Then Times without permission, uh, having just had, had the original uh, uh, available through Harry Kremer, uh, this was always a karma thing. Any, anything that I did as a convention sketch, that if you think it's good enough to put on the front of your fanzine, or if you even think it's good enough to just stick on a back page in your fanzine, you would know that better than I would. Um, probably would have been better if they had used the, uh, the Tarzan illustration a little larger and cut it into the collector part of the, of the logo. But uh, not having done that, um, it's, it's one of those, hey, Jen, um, if you're looking for a place to uh, will those two in your will, um, the, the service archive would be delighted to have those. I, if, if I ever got copies, I don't remember ever getting copies. And uh, that's, that's one of those things that uh, when you do as, as much drawing over as many years as I do, it, this stuff is, is going to come, come out of the woodwork eventually. And here it is. So I appreciate you uh, letting me have a, have a look at these. Those, those, those are the, uh, to the best of my recollection, recollection that I could give you. And we've got another Little Orphan Aardvark Secret Society member, Zipper, uh, AKA Easton, Pennsylvania's very own Michael R. Opens a can of worms with, Hi Matt, love the coder wheel. It's not a bookmark. I wish I got more of them to play with the other kids. Laugh out loud. Uh, maybe you could send uh, send Michael R a, a couple more decoder wheels, and and he, he and the folks in uh, Eastern Pennsylvania can have have fun with them. Uh, hi Dave, I noticed something with Gary Boyarsky's Jack Grimm's Halloween Kickstarter. I believe you had promised Gary a cover for Jack Grimm if he had reached a threshold with his book. And you did. Uh, yeah, that was actually a thing through, uh, through Alfonso, where uh, because most of these guys print through Alfonso, it's like, uh, who has the most issues uh, out right now? And uh, it was the Aurora Man guy who had the most number of issues. So I did a cover for Aurora Man. And then uh, Gary, uh, having gotten wind of this, uh, really busted his own hump to an amazing degree to get enough issues out to overtake Aurora Man and uh, called in his chip on when do I get my cover. Um, I'm guessing that unbeknownst to you that Gary asked Gerhard to color what you had drawn. I'm guessing again, Gerhardt had decided to put his spin on it 
and create a new background as if both of you had collaborated on the piece and get the quote team unquote back together one more time to benefit Gary's Jack Grimm's Kickstarter even more. Is the reason that you asked Gary to take your name off the collaboration, collaboration because no one asked you if this would be okay, Michael R. And then she writes, uh, I mean, that's basically what happened. I can just send Zipper a private message with, uh, with the hoopla and we can keep the Macquarie family's dirty linen from public consumption. Uh, let's see, I, that was another one of those where I went, well, if I start answering that one, that's going to go sprawling all over the place, or is in danger of sprawling all over the place, so let's try and, um, de-sprawl that one, and, uh, okay, here it is, this is another one, let's, let's write it all out, uh, I don't wish anyone ill, not Denny, not Gerard, no one. But in my mid-60s, it's very difficult to stay focused on everything I need to stay focused on. Prayer, fasting, reading scripture aloud, making enough money to keep the doors open, and the lights on at Art Mark I'm finishing Strange Death of Alex Raymond before I die, and keeping up with everything going on with Cerebus and Hell with a question mark. All of it on the fly. I will add that I've got uh, the, the front lawn covered with uh, $18,000 worth of roofing material, $18,000 Canadian, uh, but still. And uh, that's another one of those on-the-fly things. Uh, and I really find anything that isn't one of those things to be beside the point. I don't have Internet access for primarily that reason. Uh, Amok, if I had access to it, would distract me from work and everything else that my life is made up of. Um, I will interrupt at this point and say that you are very, very good about that, considering that you are the um, temporary gatekeeper for Amok. Uh, there are very, very few occasions when you fax me stuff that I, had, I, I really didn't need to see this. Uh, if, um, if I needed to see things like this, I would have internet access and I don't, so that I don't have these things, uh, distracting from me, uh, distracting me. Um, getting back to this, the only place I can see Gerard fitting into any of those contexts is, quote, money to keep the doors open and the lights on, unquote. If anyone wants to pay me to draw a four-inch or five-inch tall service, let's say the exact size is arbitrary, but, you know, around there, on whatever size a sheet of watercolor paper, and then get really deliver it to Gerhardt or mail it to Gerhardt, and if that anyone is willing to pay me, say, $600, and then pay Gerhardt whatever Gerhardt wants to charge them to fill the rest of the sheet with a background and watercolor it, watercolor it I'm fine with that. Just Cerebus, no Jaka, Lord Julius, the Roach, etc. And Gerard is welcome to do whatever Gerard wants to do that someone will pay him to do. But I really don't want to hear about it if it involves my work. As you said, 
I just thought you would think it was neat. Uh, Gerhardt and Gerhardt's work aren't in that category for me. I would have no interest in seeing what Gerhardt did with my four-inch or five-inch tall service. Just the $600 I would get paid to do it and the fact that it would make a service fan happy. Uh, thank you for your phone message, Michael. I'm glad you liked the number 26 sketchbook cover as much as you did. I realized $600 was a big spend for you and Grace. Uh, it was a strange thing when I was doing it that it was the only one with Sarah's vest. Why am I putting a vest on this one? And then I rippled the vest. I, I think what happened there was uh, Michael, you sent me a mental zeitgeist message about wanting Cerebus the Pope before you actually email, fax, relayed me the request, which came in after I had the number six, 26 done. And that's what I was doing. The, um, <laughs> and it's like, I drew a blank. What's, what's that purple scarf that he wears? the Pope wears. What, what, what do you call that when, when a priest wears one of those, or uh, a minister wears one of those, or the Pope wears one of those? It's not a scarf. Um, Vestiments. It, it's a what? Vestiments. Vestiments. No, no, no. Vestiments is, uh, is the tunic. I already looked that one up. Oh, um... That I don't know. Okay, so uh, we 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 might that we might make that our uh, secret decoder question, um, or or a part of the secret decoder question. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave all of that up to you, but uh, you have to answer these questions. What what are the forearm things in John Carter of Mars called? Um, what is that scarf that Cerebus wears as the Pope called? Uh, we'll, we'll think of a couple of, couple of more, uh, more trivia questions there. Um, so yeah, getting back to Michael R. Uh, no, I haven't gotten your letter. He said in the phone message that uh, he, had, he had an interesting story about where the $600 for the uh, sketchbook cover came from. And did I get the letter yet? No, I haven't gotten the letter yet, but I'm looking forward to it now. Uh, it, Michael R. is another one of those guys. Um, if, you, if you don't hear from him, like David Birdsong, I would tell anytime I don't hear from David Birdsong for a while, uh, the next time I hear from him, it's going to be a, a really interesting story. Um, this one was when he uncovered the nest full of yellow jackets and got stung like 60 times. So uh, anyway, that's that's uh, that's the bottom line on that one. There's there's an answer, Michael, to your Gerhard question, and a special thank you for uh, for um, re really going out on a limb. Like I say, I know six hundred is a big spend for him and Grace on something like that, and just really really glad that he was pleased with it and not going. Why did I get to? Why was I the only guy that got it? <laughs> Well, so, getting back to uh, the, just really quickly, the not sending you stuff that you're not interested in, there's three reasons for that. One is, when I fax stuff, I always think, 
is this the beginning of the toner cartridge or the end of the toner cartridge? Because if it's the beginning, I don't want to waste it. And if it's the end, I'm afraid that nothing's going to come through. Well, it, it's, it'll it, still retain it in the machine until I get um, well, but, the toner. But the mentality there is very much a, I'm not sending this digitally where I can email all day, every day, and it doesn't matter. It's all electronic. This is physical media where at a certain point there's no paper, there's no ink, and we have to wait to get it. So this is really important. Grandpa's actually, Grandpa's actually getting better about that now. It's like I used to tell Rolly, uh, I just put the last one in, um, so can you get me another one? And uh, uh, then I realized, no, with this whole supply line thing, and sometimes Walmart has them, and sometimes Walmart doesn't. Sometimes he's got to order them online. Um, I'll tell Rolly when I'm when I put in the second last one, and Rolly is now in the habit of any time that I ask him for one of them, he picks up two. So we're we're all getting used to each other on this thing. Well, the other reason is when I do fax, it's a uh, okay. Let's keep this short and sweet because fifteen-page faxes are okay, but five-page faxes are ideal. Yes, especially if they're all just pictures and stuff with, with little captions on them. And that's, you know, it's big enough that Dave can see it, small enough that it doesn't take up more than a page. Right. If I can get two to a page, oh man, that's like Christmas. <laughs> it's a, and it's a need-to-know thing. It's like you have a pretty good instinct about, uh, yeah, this will, uh, whatever Dave's answer is to this, uh, I'm hoping it's just two lines or a paragraph, and uh, it'll make, it'll fill up a day on a moment of cerebus and make uh, make your burden a little lighter uh, as well. Well, the problem with that is that invariably something happens, and all of a sudden I have five days worth of faxes, and I'm like, nope, they're all going up at once. <laughs> right. I, I, right. ju I just did a post, and the title was, I don't want to run 11 pages of faxes from Dave, but I have to. Well, that's, yeah, that's one of those things, too, where it's like, okay, I think this is interesting enough that uh, a moment of service people will be interested in it. Uh, it'll fill up a, a day for Matt, but I, I never know how you're doing with, uh, you know, okay, what, what sometimes happened? you need them. Sometimes you're up to your eyeballs in post. Well, what happened is at the right before the end of October, Paula had to do her schedule online for work, basically of what clients she's, what patients she's going to go and see, and then she had to do the schedules for three other nurses filling holes because they're understaffed. And she Yay. she warned me when I get home I need the computer. And I'm like, eh, I'm just going to skip the blog today and. If anyone complains, it's not going to matter. And so, a bunch of faxes came in on a Tuesday, and then they came in on a Wednesday, which Wednesday is Hobbs Post, so I don't have to worry about it, and Thursday is Margaret, or the Ardwark Short Sword and Flames. So by the time Saturday rolled around, it's like, I have 11 pages of faxes. Oh, you're just, there you go. It's going to be a long post, but it's going to be worth it, because it's going to be all about the Russian service uh, 
possible hardcover uh, trade paperback. Yes, the the a moment of service viewers cup runneth over, and uh, I can't I can't think that that's totally a bad thing. Although it is a, a sort of counterintuitive internet thing. What, what are you doing posting eleven pages of anything? This is this is too long. Didn't view. There were, there was one one day where I was doing updates on I think it was Spawn Ten. Strange Death of Alex Raymond, the Carson and Sean version. Uh, Hobbs had his Kickstarter, and there was an update for that. And there was like five or six other things where okay. And I got to the very end. And I'm like, oh yeah, moment of service. And I just put one of the service and hell images were of just service. And I'm like, that counts. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're the arbitrator of that. If, if, if you say it's a post, it's a post. I I always joke that that. The readership continually goes, I miss Tim. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think we're, okay, we're coming up on the end here. Uh, yes, uh, Dion Turner, the Enigma guy who, who cracked the code, TV. Question for Dave. Uh, if I've made the cutoff time or roll it over to next month, if not. No, you made it, Dion. Uh, Cerebus losing his ear in reads. Was this injury something that you knew was coming, or was it not until you were laying out the fight that you thought he was going to need a reminder of this for the rest of his life? And was it always specifically going to be his ear? Um, definitely... I, I, was, I would say... Uh, the decision was made very, very close to all the stuff going down on the page in line with, I wanted this to be the, the most blood-soaked um, fight scene in the history of comics, which at least to that point it was. Um, I'm sure we have competition since then. Um, and one, one of the things would have been Okay, if you really want that to stick, have a permanent injury of some kind. Otherwise, it's just, um, you know, as soon as, every, as soon as you wash all the blood off, there's really not that much there. So, okay, you know, it looked a lot worse than it is. Uh, I wanted it to be at least as bad as it looked. So that was... And was it always specifically going to be his ear? No, again, it was. Uh, it would have been. Well, this is this is going to take a certain amount of cut, guts to uh, mutilate your own character, and to do it in such a way that uh, he's going to have that uh, from then on. I mean, uh, you know, from from that point in the storyline which was, you know, 100 issues to go. Are you sure you want to do this? Because, you you know, we're not going to do a Marvel Comics and then, you know, the Cosmic Cube came from Galaxy whatever and uh, uh, poof, Cerebus's ear grew back. Hey, wow, ultra cool. Um, so, and it, and it was also, okay, from now on, you're always going to have to remember which ear it is. You can't suddenly have a two-eared cerebus. This is something you're going to have to concentrate on. 
I want to do. Um, I would have had, well, you know, to, to the point where that happened in the fight, um, I had that long to go, am I going to do this? Am I not going to do this? And by the time I got there, it was like, yes, I'm definitely going to do this. This is not something where I would go, mm, no, nice idea, but uh, let's try and make sure that we all keep service uh, in one piece. Well, it was uh, it was vaguely foreshadowed in, a, in flight when the Piggott statue reassembles and then the ear falls off. Yeah, it, it, that's, I, I, I would like to claim that, but I don't think that's what happened. I think that was one of those, there's uh, my conscious mind and my unconscious mind and my superconscious mind, and very possibly my superconscious mind went, hey, this would be pretty cool because, you know, I know what's happening, uh, however many issues from now. Uh, but Dave doesn't, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. Um, as far as I know, that, that, that's, that's what the situation was. Uh, given in minds, Creator Dave also gives him an eye operation. I was wondering if there was ever a potential that it was going to be the one injury, loss of an eye. Uh, I suspect not, given the story that Creator Dave shares on the procedure. Uh, yeah, the, the, the eye was um, never going to be um, that kind of an injury. The, the point was going to be that um, particularly for Cerebus, who has no idea about modern ophthalmology and uh, um, how, how you treat these things, it was, this is a really, really horrific thing to have happen. Uh, but it wasn't that big a deal. And particularly the injection that he got first, it's like, okay, you can't even pretend that this hurts or hurts in quotation marks, having, having gone through the procedure, yeah, there, it's no fun having a needle go in close to your eye, but from then on, there was just absolutely no sensation. And uh, although I had a bandage over top of it, uh, the bandage was really not necessary after even, even an hour or so. Uh, that's just self-pitying histrionics on Cerebus's part that uh, as long as he's got this bandage over his eye they can talk about this horrific thing that happened to him he's, uh, he's Cerebus the hero if so then in parentheses to paraphrase an often asked question close parentheses why an ear uh, tying it to historical characters we have Van Gogh but he did that to himself and the voices in Cerebus's head that cause him to self-harm don't show up until later in Guy's and Rick's story. So is there, so there is a connection slash reflection slash, slash echo of Van Gogh there, even with the cart before the horse, or ear before the voices, as it were. Uh, yes, definitely, I thought of Van Gogh through um, that whole 
situation, and uh, I have I have a residual curiosity that uh, if anybody would like to tax Dave Sims something, um, whatever is the definitive Van Gogh biography, and I'm not even enough of a fan to know whether there is such a thing or which one it is, I would be very interested in reading that part because I do remember reading something about that, that no, he didn't cut off his ear, he cut off the ear lobe or a part of his ear. And do, do you know anything about this? That It was for a, a dancer at the Folie Berger or a prostitute or uh, someone where, uh, talk about, you know, excessive engagement, uh, considering that you are and will one day be Van Gogh. actually only cut off the ear lobe. He didn't cut off the whole ear. Right. But I also know there's an episode of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, where there's a collector who has, I think it might have been, I can't remember if it's Luther or somebody else, but it's a rich collector who has uh, Van Gogh's other better self-portrait. It's, and it's one of the famous self-portraits, only it's an ear on a chair. Um, I, I, I do believe it was just the earlobe. I can't rem I know it was to impress somebody, but that's where it's one of those, the story is it's, it's you, know, you know, it's Rashomon of, depending on who you ask and what source you find. Right. I mean, I'm sure that there's, I know there's a number of biographies of him, but I, I'm curious as to which one would be, you know, it's, which one is the best for sourcing and which one is the biography that was written based off the biography that was written that based off the biography that was written, yada, 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 toward the point where it's like, you know, he painted sunflowers is the only thing that you can believe out of the book. Right, right. I mean, um, did, did he refer to it in any of his letters to his brother? Because I, knew, I know that uh, the correspondence between those two is really the primary uh, source material. If, if, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, yes, this is, this is a letter that he wrote where he said that, that he did this and how much of it, I mean, that's one of those things, the legend is going to start cropping up practically in the first half hour and uh, never really calm down from there. Uh, how much, how, uh, how, how much is this covered? Because it, it is, you know, it, uh, like you say, most of us only know, well, I know that he painted sunflowers and I know he cut off his ear. That's, and he never sold a painting in his life. No, no, uh, he know. sold, he sold one, possibly two. Okay, see, uh, even that he didn't sell a painting is, is apocryphal. So, I, it, this is one of those... The only reason, um, the only reason I know this is I looked it up because I've sold three paintings and that's one more than Van Gogh.
you know, can I even dream of getting Strange Death of Alex Raymond done before I die? Uh, sitting there mulling it over and then going, Van Gogh's ear. Let's let's just type that in and, and see what comes up. And it's like, it'll probably be 50, 60 pages of stuff. And it's like, Grandpa, there are other things for you to be interested in. But, uh, yeah, if there's, if there's any... Uh, uh, I, I would certainly be interested in reading a chapter, you know, 10 pages or something like that, just to put my mind at rest and go, okay, this is, this is all that we, all that we really know about this. Uh, and then Dion goes on, the only other ear story I can think of is Jesus reattaching a guard's ear at Gethsemane uh, after one of his disciples went a bit sword happy. Um, yeah, that, that was one of those, okay, as soon as I read that, I went, well, okay, I know what, uh, the Johannan Jesus, uh, situation is, um, Peter in John's gospel is the one that draws his sword and cuts off the right ear of one of the chief priest's slaves. Uh, and then I went, okay, there's, there's analogs of this in, uh, in the synoptic gospels. Uh, let's check those. Uh, two of them, um, mention that one of Jesus' disciples did this, pulled out a sword and cut, uh, the ear of, uh, the slave of, a slave of the chief priest. And one of the accounts has, um, it, it says, cut off his little ear. And it's like, mm, okay, I don't know what that is, which, you know, <laughs> explains why the Christian fathers didn't, uh, you know, translate that part. Let's just leave off the little, let's just uh, make it an ear. Why does it say, little ear and it's only in Luke's gospel that uh, he heals the ear and that's uh, one of those well okay did he cause a new ear to grow or did he reattach the ear because um, that you know those are those are two different things, and um, uh, I, like like Dion, I'm, I'm pretty sure almost all of the Christian uh, gospel uh, gospel translations of Luke say that he reattached the ear, and it's like, well, no, if it says he healed the ear, that doesn't mean he reattached it. That means he healed it, and there are two different ways to heal it: reattaching it and causing a new one to grow. So um, that was that was one of those interesting things, particularly the fact that, like I say, in John's Gospel, um, Peter's the one that cuts off the ear, and in uh, the other, uh, Matthew and Mark, um, it's only a disciple, and doesn't doesn't specify who it is, because of course you know I'm the guy that thinks that there there are two different Jesus, so. Um, I haven't been able to figure out 
whether the trial of Sadoptic Jesus came first or the trial of the Johannine Jesus came first. And then everybody, when they scattered um, from one of them, they went to the other one, as, as far as I can determine. So that uh, essentially Judas turned them both in. Uh, that's, to me, what the Johannine Jesus is saying. What you are doing, do more quickly. It's, and none of the disciples knew, uh, well, what does he mean when he says to Judas, what you're doing is uh, do more quickly. I think Judas's plan was to turn them in one at a time. It's like if he turns in the synoptic Jesus and he passes muster with the, uh, the high priest and the Sanhedrin as uh, the Mashiach, then that settles the issue. Uh, we don't have to worry about it. If they say this is a false Mashiach and they execute him uh, or imprison him, then that means, okay, the Johannine Jesus could still be in. Let's turn him in. And I think the Johannine Jesus was being told what was going on and was going, uh, no, we want both of these, um, you, you being captured and the synoptic Jesus being captured to happen simultaneously or as close to simultaneously as possible. And uh, that's why he said to Judas, what you're doing, do more quickly. Um, so let, let's see where that brings us, which we made. In mines, both Syrian and Cerebus get healed, probably more to prevent blood loss and passing out. <laughs> and also, not having to draw all that blood all over <laughs> for another however many pages, uh, which would have made a boring comic. And like I say, not, a, not only uh, have to draw all that blood all over Cerebus for however many more issues, but how do you get a facial expression to show through all of, the, all of that blood? Uh, but Cerebus is never restored slash made all, which I expect Creator Dave could have done. I'm not sure if this was on your mind at the time, as we're still a bit before Rick's story, but uh, your research into the Bible may have been underway. Uh, would have been underway, but no, I didn't make the connection between... Uh, Cerebus losing his ear and uh, the chief priest slave losing his ear in uh, all, all four Gospels, but uh, described, described different, differently and uh, with, with different perpetrators. Uh, what we do get in mind and what I think the real point of the year is, is the discussion between Cerebus and his creator, where Cerebus demonstrate, demonstrates time and again that he just doesn't listen. It's the most simple view of it, and that's probably what makes it right. He gets another prompt early in guise where he dreams his other ear is cut off. Yes, there is a story point there, where he's telling lies about there and becoming ridiculously drunk to the point where he has no recollection or control. But once again, I think it's Creator Dave telling him, you're still not listening, which in the end takes him all the way back to Sand Hills Creek, uh, a season too late. Yes, um, astutely put. 
Um, I think that was part of the enactment uh, in the Bible, was uh, reinforcing the fact that this was the culpability of not only the chief priest and not only the Sanhedrin and everybody in proximity was you're not listening. Um, you, if, if you want to determine if this is the Mashiach, you have to listen to what he's saying. And they, they weren't prepared to do that. In, in John's Gospel, when he does finally get to, uh, to Caiaphas, um, the, the high priest, um, it's, it's just a complete rubber stamp. We don't, even, we don't even hear or see what happens. It's just they brought him in. Uh, yeah, fine, take him over to Pilate. And it's like, you're the chief priest of the Jews, and you don't even want to hear what the Mashiach might have to say to you? Um, talk, talk, about, talk about cutting off your ear. Uh, hope you're both doing well. I always enjoy the please hold. Well, thank you, Dion, and be sure to say hi to Rebecca for me. And um, thank you for, uh, for a very elaborate question there. You know, the, the thing with the eye and minds and the ear and reeds, I mean, whatever, whatever significance to the story those injuries have is completely ruining guys when Mick asks either uh, Harrison or George, uh, what, 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 why do you suppose there was only one eye and one ear? Maybe you only saw one tit. <laughs> which, which, but of course, there's a, there's a subtle, if that were true, because service is a hermaphrodite and the Cernus wouldn't necessarily punish a woman as harshly as a man, that would be why one ear and one eye. It, it's, uh, that never occurred to me, but that's a good one. It, it just occurred to me now. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Cernus Law, they're not as harsh with the women as they are with the men. Because mothers, you know, mothers and potential mothers have more rights than, than men. Resonating nicely with uh, Rick only getting one of his thumbs broken. Exactly. Because he's a girly boy. There you go. But, it's uh, like it's like you have this amazingly fantastic, detailed, schizophrenia-induced world that everyone else would be. It's just a comic; it doesn't matter. But but does it? <laughs> well, yeah. This is uh, we, we're both sort of like standing there looking at what we just described and going, "How about that? Is that actually in there?" Or uh, or are, are, are we just uh, both schizophrenic in the same way? Well, on, on Twitter, somebody shared the image of uh, Norman Rockwell's Shuffleton Barbershop and made mention of, hey, look, these are actual comics. And they asked Eric Larson, because Eric Larson has a encyclopedic knowledge of comics that's very, very deep. And they asked, do you know what covers these are? Because I follow him on Twitter. I saw him like, oh, Dave Sim and I figured this out ten years ago. Or more. And and did, did, I, did you know where to find it? Oh yeah, I, I, I went back in my email because that was that was the Norman Rockwell thing and afterward we were posting about it to the service Yahoo group and I have all those emails because I'm a digital hoarder. Uh, 
Right. And I found that I found that where we'd have talked where I had talked about it, and then John L had talked about it, and John was the one that found the original covers to share right. with everybody. So I, I posted it all on Twitter, and everybody was like, and it was one of those, uh, Eric Larson found the Donald Duck, and I'm like, oh yeah, the other two are Gabby Haynes Western and Crime Does Not Pay, and somebody went, well, the logo doesn't look like Crime. I'm like, yeah, no, we discovered that uh, somebody at the Saturday Evening Post covered up the logos. Right, right. So was there a lot of, hey, round of applause for the, for the Cerebus people? Um, like four, four or five people, because I, I comment, anybody that commented on it, I commented with the same, the same basic information, but said a different way as a, just getting this out there, like, this was settled a while ago, like, the, the Norman Rockwell Museum has it on file of, hey, at this particular show, these guys figured this out. So it was, there was a little bit of applause, but not a lot. Not a lot. Well, it's the internet. The internet. They're, they're just looking for somebody to spring up from the nearest tree. Uh, so their, their minds are always on that. I, I, pretty cool seeing the aardvark here. We're, we're, we're at the end with uh, uh, Johnny Scrabbles wants to know if you have Conan number 14, The Coming of Elric. Yes, I do. It's, uh, it's definitely a reading copy, but uh, it was well read. Um, when I was trying to figure out how to do DWS. Uh, I suspect if you did own it, uh, you sold it when you moved out. It wasn't, wasn't in good enough shape to sell, uh, Matt, so there you go. <laughs> well, uh, so Johnny Scrambles asked us on Facebook, and John Christensen, who is a retailer, I believe, from Texas, yeah. uh, asked about... So he, he wonders what all you have in your comic collection. And then he posted an image of his run of the Barry Windsor Smith Conan books going, does anybody else think these are necessary for service completists? Well, I hope not. Everybody will go bankrupt. Well, a couple guys commented going, well, yeah, if you're truly obsessive. <laughs> Okay. I think uh, I think Jeff Seiler owned most of those books. Did he? He when when he was telling me what he was leaving me, he said he had two long boxes and two short boxes, and he's got a Savage Sword of Conan number one. And I think the way he made it sound was it was in like nine point eight condition and possibly was slabbed. How about that? I. My, mine are mine are well thumbed. My my issue one and issue two uh, because of the because of the red nails and uh, they 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 definitely got got some miles on. Uh, I'm assuming they kind of look like the uh, stack of Morpheus the Dream King that Service was reading at Mr. McGursky's house. Yes, good example. Good example. <laughs> and. For, for uh, maybe a, a higher intention uh, purpose that uh, uh, I can't I can't keep these meant if uh, if I'm going to be referring to them uh, correctly. Okay, coming into the final glide pattern, Mikhail Mikhail Bozharov. 
posted on the Face It books. Uh, fun fact, in the animated series about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2003, there was an episode adaptation of the plot of the 8th TMNT issue about Cerebus. The character was cut out, the story was rewritten a little, but such an Easter egg flashed through. That's the, and then you say, that's the artwork I mentioned last month in the episode The Turtles and Rennet, um, or Rene fell out of a portal. The artwork looks at them, looks away, and snorts derisively. Uh, Aaron Wood commented on the boat. Would have been a great opportunity for an action figure, which is where I should, uh, where you jump in, which is where I really should ask if you want me to contact NECA. What, what is NECA? What does that stand for? Uh, NECA. It's the name of the company. They make toys. I'm trying to remember. I think they do statues and stuff too. But right now, they're doing re. It's essentially remastered action figures from the 90s. So it's the little toys from the late 80s, early 90s. But they're now 7 inches tall with more articulation, uh, better looking accessories. But it's it's the toy you had as a kid the way you would have wanted it as a kid is is how they kind of sell them. And right. they just teamed up with uh, Stan Saki and now they're doing uh, Yosagi Ojimbo. Okay. And they announced that and somebody on Twitter was like, hey, what about service? And I'm like, well, I can ask Dave. Uh, yeah, you're welcome to go, go ahead with that. Um, I didn't want to get to the point where I was signing a contract on it, which was what scuttled it with uh, Pete Laird uh, way back when. But um, if, if they're interested in, in doing a Cerebus as he appeared in uh, TMNT number eight, that that would really be a completely different thing. That would be, uh, uh, it's, it, it, it was in um, TMNT number eight, and uh, they, they would be licensing this from uh, Viacom, right? Yeah, that would, that would be the way that I believe, I mean, they, they would have to give, Viacom to sign off on it as well, but that I know they'd have to get you to sign off. Yeah, I mean, it would be one of those, uh, I, I've never sued anybody before, and I certainly wouldn't start with you guys kind of thing. Um, oh. it, 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 would be, it would probably be worth an email uh, trying to explain to them why, why uh, you're authorized to... Uh, to be contacting them about this. Just make up a title for yourself. Oh, oh I already have a title. Uh, if I contact them as Ron Essler, I'm the Senior Executive Assistant to, or Senior Executive Assistant in charge of Zuckerberg-based social media. Okay. Well, <laughs> All right. The, the, That's, the, Ron's really coming up in the world. Oh, no, no. Ron also has a job with S.H.I.E.L.D. in the Marvel Universe doing differential cartography. And when I posted that, because I found a website where you can make badges for S.H.I.E.L.D. 
and it, and it gives you what department you're in, and you can fill it in. So I filled in differential cartography, and somebody, what does that mean? Like, map and alternate universes? Cause there you go. If I, were, if I were in the Marvel Universe, that's the kind of job I'd want. You go wrong. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, the thing about Contact and NECA, it, I just saw a quote from John Carpenter where he was asked about all the sequels to Halloween. And, you know, because they're not necessarily the best movies, and it's very formulaic, and why do they keep making these things? And he's like, here's how it works. I'm sitting in my chair in the living room. They say on TV, hey, we're doing another Halloween sequel. I stick out my hand, and a check appears. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. That's, that's, that's my kind of uh, business. So, so NECA is just... It's just NECA. It doesn't stand for anything. Uh, it might. Okay, let, me let me rephrase that. NECA doesn't stand for anything. It might, but I'd have to look into it. But I will I will reach out. I'll go through their website and contact. I'll, you know, basically explain Dave's not on the internet, but I can, you know, anything you got to tell Dave, I can tell Dave. Anything Dave's got to tell you, I can tell you. I can be the middleman. But the short answer is there is an interest in the service. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle figure, if you guys want to do it, we can make it happen, but it involves Dave sitting in his living room, reaching out his hand, and getting a check. <laughs> and, uh, and George Peter Gatsis, it's like I've got his therapist figure here. I, I would be happy to, uh, at the very least, email them photos of it, uh, and part of their work is already done that way, but you would, you would have to... Uh, Cross uh, Sahib uh, George Gatz's palm with Silver Sahib. <laughs> that's that's pretty much you know. I kind of figured it was a yeah. You're not going to say no, but at the same time, it's a getting a hold of somebody, getting him to realize I'm not just some random kook from the internet. I'm actually the random kook who knows the real world kook that you guys want to talk to. Right, you're the Ron Esler. Well, I, I I would send it from the moment of service email, so it would be Manly Matt Dow. I would I would make sure that you know they know I'm on I'm I'm as up and up as I can get for a guy that runs a blog about a comic that ended in two thousand four. Well, he's, uh, shouldn't shouldn't it be Manly Matthew Dow? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> you you want to use your full name with uh, with the with these corporate types just to. Well, I figure if I put Manly, they'll think maybe they'll get confused and think I'm Stanley, and then they'll they'll be like, "Hey, we can we can get Spider Man. I can get you a spider. Might not be a man. Might be a little shorter with more arms. Something like that. Next thing, Esler the man. Next thing you know, they're going to be going, "Hey, we want to do a Spider Vark figure," and you're like, "Hey, you want to talk to George or to Jim Shooter's lawyers? Go ahead." There you go. There you go. Okay, I'm going to run along, Matt, but before I go, uh, I had Rolly pull out one of the um, Service the Sketchbook uh, watercolors before he sent the rest of them to um, Heritage Auctions. This is number 10, uh, sequentially number 13, and it's sitting right here in front of me, and... Somebody is going to get that at a moment of service when they figure out all of the clues and
a bunch of stuff on the decoder wheel and that will tell them what day it is that they have to be the first person to post the word swordfish. Closest to that time that Matt, Manly Matthew Dow will set and I will, I will personalize it to them if they want it and uh, just leave it the way it is if they want it and it will go directly to them completely free of charge. So wait, I gotta come up with this contest? <laughs> yes. You have, you have plenty of time. It's oh. just... Uh, well, it's, it's... I'm thinking already it's gonna be... I'm gonna make it... It's gonna have to be not necessarily hard, but labor-intensive enough that, you know, Michael Art isn't a shoo-in. <laughs> That's the challenge. That's the challenge. And uh, find, find a way to, to include other people, too. You could have, uh, I don't know, uh, um, playoffs. Playoffs where you, you get a wild-card spot um, coming, coming down to the wire. Is, is the wild-card guy actually actually going to go to the finals and uh, keep, keep everybody in contention and make sure that it's something that just completely, completely creates uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder viewership of, uh, of a moment of Cerebus because the Cerebus, the sketchbook, is on the line and you have to be on your toes and you have to be on a moment of service practically 24-7 because if you're not, Michael R. will be. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'm going to go, Matt. All right. Good night. Have a good night, Dave. Bye. Talk to you, talk to you next time. Bye-bye. <sighs> okay, people. We're not starting the contest now. But we do have a message from Little Orphan Aardvark herself. So, for all the members of the Little Orphan Aardvark Secret Society, and uh, if you want to get in, remember there's three ways to get in. Number one, send 50 Ovaltine proofs of purchase to Dave along with 8 bucks for shipping and handling. He still doesn't know about that. Number two, you can buy copies of the coronavirus books from me. Just send an email to Moment of Service at gmail.com saying that you want the, the coronavirus books and it's four bucks a book plus probably more for shipping they keep changing that and we'll iron out those details later uh, the third way is to send an email to moment of service at gmail.com saying that you want a little orphan artwork Secret Society official decoder bookmark which isn't really a bookmark because it's six and a half inches wide but it's five bucks for one of those, and once I get the money, I mail it out. I hand create each one, carefully cutting the circles out, making taking precise measurements to put the hole through the middle so that they aren't completely screwed up. And if you have a screwed up one, congratulations, that's before I remembered that I owned a ruler. Anyway, Aardvark's important message for you, the members of the Secret Society... Get ready, pen and paper, write it down, because I'll probably put it online and you'll just take a screenshot and 
Dion will just hack it because he's a genius. But set your decoder wheels to A equals copyright. The important message that Aardvark's counting on you to decode as soon as you possibly can, because this is time sensitive, is heart, E, copyright. Uh, is that O or zero? Eh, we'll say zero. It's either O or zero. You'll figure it out. Infinity, diamond, I, space, heart, infinity, Aries, copyright, two, V, three, G, space, V, skull and crossbones, diamond, Q, four, space, S, Skull and crossbones, two, I, E, four, space, four, skull and crossbones, space, three, E, four, space, nine, skull and crossbones, five, two, space, A, heart, skull and crossbones, A, spade, three, space, D, copyright, a spade space skull and crossbones diamond e space m skull and crossbones five two space skull and crossbones diamond space three five diamond v copyright nine pisces space t n Excuse me. Let's start that word over. T, 9, skull and crossbones, 5, 2, space, A, E, heart, heart, space, uh, O or 0, man, I gotta get a better font for that, O or 0, M, skull and crossbones, diamond, E, space, 7, infinity, heart, heart, space, Zero, two, skull and crossbones, D, copyright, D, heart, nine, space, A, M, copyright, diamond, I, E, space, infinity, four, three, E, heart, S, Pisces, 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 L, space, eight, skull and crossbones, eight, skull and crossbones, space, Heart, infinity, four, four, heart, E, space, skull and crossbones, two, zero, M, copyright, diamond, space, copyright, copyright, two, V, six, copyright, two, spade. Let me just double check my little wheelie here. Hey, what do you know? Yeah, all those O's are actually zeros. There is no O on the code. Huh. Well, I'm pretty smart. I should have figured that out. Alright, so that was your message from Little Orphan Hardwork. Decode as fast as possible and send your response to uh, mouseskull at, or it's not mouseskull, moanofservice at gmail.com and it will count as one point towards whatever contest we come up for for 10 slash 13 
Aardvark, Sword, and Flames. And if you're not a member of the Little Orphanate Aardvark Secret Society and want to become a member, remember, you can send 50 Ovaltine proofs to purchase a day along with 8 bucks. He has no idea about that. Or email momentofservice at gmail.com and say, I want into the Secret Society. Please, 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 how do I get in? And then you PayPal me the money, and then I eventually remember to send a package, and the postman finally brings it after weeks and weeks of waiting. You know, it, the joke was six to eight weeks for delivery, and, and now sadly it's probably going to be six to eight weeks for delivery. Um, thank you to everyone who listened to uh, Please Solve for Dave Sim for November of 2021. Uh, I hope you had a good time. And if you didn't, by the time you get to this point, you're probably not going to listen to this point to hear me say thank you for listening. You're probably going to have stopped hours ago and uh, commented on the YouTube video or the blog post when this goes up that I suck and I'm fat. And uh, what else does the anonymous two minutes hate say? Ah, I can't repeat in polite society. Uh, last one out, turn out the lights. Don't take any wooden nickels. And for what, and whatever you do, Please, 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 don't piss up wind.